Hey everybody, Bob here. When I tell people I play in a band, they inevitably ask me, what kind of music do we play? And I'll say, Americana. And they say, what's Americana? And I'll say, good question. What is Americana? It's a big word. What does it mean? Well, that's the question Ben and I are going to be asking at a live Road to Now taping at the Riverside Revival in Nashville, Tennessee on Monday, September 18th at 7 p.m. We're going to be joined by historian Jefferson Cowie and Grammy-winning artists Emmylou Harris and Rodney Crowell. What a panel. We want you to come and be a part of the conversation. So that's the Road to Now Live at the Riverside Revival on September 18th, 7 p.m. in Nashville, Tennessee. Please join us. Tickets are on sale now. Mark Doyle, welcome to The Road to Now. Thanks for having me. Mark, when I was young and I got into classic rock, it was the Stones, it was the Who, it was the Beatles, and then there was the Kinks. They didn't quite fit. I looked at them more on the punk rock end of, of all of that. They were seemed to be nonconformists. I'm so excited about your book. What inspired you to grab a historical context of the kinks? Hmm. Yeah, it's um, it's hard to trace the origins to a certain extent. I, I didn't actually grow up listening to the kinks all that much. I did go through a classic rock phase. So I grew up in um, suburban Oklahoma City, where which was not exactly a musical hotspot. Um, the kinks I was sort of aware of, um, you know, those first couple of hits. You really got me all day and all the night. Um, but then, you know, and Lola, which sadly I came to through the uh, the Weird Al. Uh, yes, thank you. Yoda. <laughs> I can't <laughs> think about that song without thinking. I think I heard Yoda first. I, I, I definitely did. Um, and then I heard Lola on the radio. I was like, oh, this is <laughs> somebody made a, a parody of the Weird Al song. Anyway, so, you know, the Kinks went through sort of a revival in the 90s, uh, the Britpop bands, uh, Blur especially, but also... Some of the other ones, Pulp and so on, uh, talked about them a lot. But then there was a series of reissues, I'd say around 2004, um, Village Green and Muzzle of the Hillbillies, a uh, handful of other ones uh, came out. And at that time, I was kind of hip enough to be reading music blogs and the music press and um, people whose opinion I trusted were saying, you know, hey, you know, the Kings were actually this really hugely significant band. And I never really given them much thought beyond those early hits. And so I started listening to those albums and came to realize, oh, yeah, this is actually there's it's much more lyrically rich. I'm somebody who tends to be drawn first to lyrics and then to the sound. So, you know, it was around maybe 15 years ago that I started paying attention to them closely. But it wasn't until I started teaching this class at Middle Tennessee State University on Britain in the 20th century, where I would break up the lectures. The class is about 85 minutes. I would break up the lectures in the middle by playing some music, 20th century British music relating to the time period, um, World War I trench song, uh, big band, whatever. That's when I discovered the Arthur album. So 1969, this album that the Kinks recorded, planning to record a television show, a sort of live opera type thing. Um, but the television series never happened, but the album did. And um, the album is sort of this encapsulation of British history from about the late 19th century into the 1960s. Songs about World War One, World War Two, about the 1930s, um, and uh, post-war suburbanization, and all sorts of things. And I came to realize that I could almost teach my class. I could almost teach my 20th century Britain class just through this album, and certainly through this album plus 
the rest of the Kinks song uh, albums in this period, kind of late 60s, early 70s. And so that kind of sent me down a rabbit hole of thinking about ways to write about the band and thinking about ways to what had, what had already been written about the band, what had not yet been written about the band. And then I had tenure. <laughs> so I could write this book, uh, which is a bit of a uh, diversion from my usual uh, my, my usual stomping grounds. Uh, I'm a person that could not have named a kink song except for uh, you know you really you, you really got me, baby. Uh, you know that's what I would have said, right? Uh, I think most people will probably come to this book as a fan of the Kinks and then learn about history. Whereas on the other hand, I uh, came to it because it's a history book and learned a ton about the kinks. The tension in that band is just, it's all over the place. And it's not just tension that's personal because there's that. And I think that's what you're saying is a lot of people have written about that. You say that in the book, a lot about the personalities and the interrelationship. The tension in the world and the way that they reflect it. Going from being a band it has this huge hit with a with a song that has so few words uh-huh. to this deep thoughtful band it's such an amazing process and within it is the tension of their place and time the sense that they were born into this 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 world that was their parents world and they had already somewhat left it could you talk about their place and how they relate to uh the actual spot in the city north london where they live Sure. Um, yeah, I think, you know, one of my main arguments is that it, it's this sort of not quite fitting in-ness that kind of characterizes their music and their outlook uh, and sort of whatever uh, category you try to put them into, it doesn't quite fit. Ray and Dave Davies were born um, in the 1940s, basically post-war uh, children. Their parents had grown up in working class East London, uh, kind of deep Cockney roots in that area. But during the war, the parents had left East London, which was being bombed very heavily, for North London, which was safer, slightly more middle class, although the home they moved into was was quite small and quite affordable on a working class budget. So from the beginning, the Kinks were, uh, the Davies brothers, who were sort of the core of the band, were part of this working class outpost in a middle class neighborhood. Um, North London today, as it was then, is, is you know... It, Fairly posh. Most of the homes in that area are quite large, quite comfortable. And the house they grew up in was this little tiny cramped thing with the front room and a couple of bedrooms. And there were uh, six sisters in addition to the two brothers. They weren't all living there at the same time, but they were uh, living close by. So to a certain extent, the home they grew up in was a sort of time capsule as well as an outpost of working class London. So they grew up in this family that maintained certain habits of sociability, of recreation, uh, music listening that uh, was quite common in East End, less common among middle-class Londoners. They were working class. They closely identified with the English working classes, the London working classes, um, but they didn't actually grow up immediately around them. They grew up around the sort of middle-class area. And so I think that the class consciousness uh, that you hear in uh, and that I try to bring out in a lot of their songs just permeates everything that they do, largely because of this existing in a working class family in a, in a middle class world. I think that it's that tension that, that creates the band though. Yeah. And this is, this is what fascinates me is this, this huge extended family walking around, you know, everyone can get to each other's house. Like when you talk that, tell that story up front about, you know, them going over to watch TV at, at their sister Peggy's house, like it's a 20 minute walk. It's that story that creates them, right? Mm-hmm. It's Peggy and her husband showing them the television show in 1958, where they're able to see uh, Big Bill uh, 
I should know this because Big Bill Brunzi. Yes. Yes, because I've been listening to him. Oh my God, that's another band I discovered from this. I've listened to yeah. Bill, I yeah. listened to him for like an hour last night. He's great. Uh, could you talk about why that 1958 television show they see, where they mm -hmm. see Big Bill Brunsley, why does why is that special for their generation? Um, yeah, you know, this is something that I didn't quite appreciate until I went to London to um, to do research in the book. And, you know, when we talk about doing historical research, we're usually talking about going to archives and looking into um, musty old papers. But for this, a lot of what I did was just walking around. So I actually made that walk from uh, from Sixton Mark Terrace, where they grew up, to the the street where Peggy and, and Mike lived and, and where other uh, sisters lived, just to get a sense of that world. And it's, it's it's dispersed, uh, much more dispersed than it would have been in the kind of tight knit East End community, but um, but still very walkable. You can kind of see how how this larger family kind of all fits together. Yeah, the Big Bill Brunson, you can find it on YouTube. Low Light and Blue Smoke. He performs four songs, and it's set in this Belgian club. Um, Brunson was not a big deal, a huge deal in the United States. He was well known, but he was not an especially successful uh, blues musician in the United States, especially by the fifties. But in the fifties, he makes this a series of visits to Britain. Um, and he kind of embodies what I would say what British audiences expected the blues to sound like, um, acoustic, raw, somehow kind of suggesting the African-American life in the 19th century, not electrified, no drums involved. Uh, so when they see him on television in 1958 in this um, kind of impossibly romantic setting in this uh, jazz club, I think what he represents is both something that's really almost impossibly alien, as un-British as you can be, but also, as as Ray has said, what he appreciated about seeing Brunzi was that you could tell that he was working class, that he was sort of ragged, that he was... Um, trying to be kind of true to himself and express true raw emotion in a way that he found ray found relatable and something that he wanted to do in his own music so it was something again this tension right the, the, it's it's this um message from a far off world on the one hand but then something that he could relate to and um incorporate into his own art uh, on the other hand. So and a decade earlier, though, you say a decade earlier, kids that age would have never been able to access something like that. Right. And a decade later, they would have been so bombarded by so much music and cultural influences that 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 moment, that snippet was highly unlikely to have made the same impact. Yeah, yeah that's that's a lot of that's just due to the um, the state of television at the time. Um, you know, the, the, uh, Mike and Peggy were, I think, the only members of the extended Davies family that had a television. So people would go over there to actually watch TV and TV watching at that time was sort of a communal activity. So, you know, they had this sort of window onto this wider world that had not been available a decade earlier. And then, yeah, by 1968, all bets are off. Everything is sort of available to everybody to a certain extent. Hey, Mark, I'd like to ask about the the um, kind of evolution of the music itself, uh, where you have like, uh, you know, the early hits that were these pop hits. And, we, and you see this with the Beatles. You see this with the Stones. It's kind of the same thing um, where where um, it is this uh, a, a it's it's the attraction to American blues music. Then, right, that helps spawn the music, and and uh, the early hits are in that blues form, yeah, you know, and, and and an electrified version of that blues, and a British, you know, British version of that blues form. But then you get to Picture Book and Muswell Hillbillies, yeah, and these Muswell Hillbillies, I would argue, um, became a Americana 
a, a huge influence on what we know today as Americana music. Yeah. Definitely influenced a lot of bands um, it was, and it had a great impact on Wilco. I know it had a great impact on the Ava brothers. Um, so so talk about Ray Davies' songwriting and the expansion of the music itself from that three-chord rock form to these uh, really introspective, um, just beautiful, deep songs that were written uh, in the early late 60s, early 70s. Yeah, you know, something happens in popular music around 1965. Um, one of those things that happens is Dylan um, kind of changing his sound and expanding his sound. Another thing that happens is drugs, although the Kinks, um, anyway, Ray, uh, is much less uh, kind of influenced by the drug culture than um, than many other bands. Um, one of the things that is specific to the Kinks is that in 1965, they have this kind of disastrous tour in the United States. Um, and for complicated reasons, they get banned from touring in the U.S. Okay, uh, so just years. briefly, because mm-hmm. I, I read that in the introduction to your book, um, what without trying to get too far in the weeds, how did they get banned from the United <laughs> States? I mean, so it was the American Federation of Musicians, the Musicians Union, um, which had the power to essentially shut down or blackball a band. Um, and uh, it's unclear uh, to this day. Nobody knows exactly what happens. Um, you know, they have some bad interviews, they have some no shows, um, but it seems to be that they, um, somehow really, uh, clashed with this promoter, this concert promoter in San Francisco. And I think during one of their performances that they were contracted to do, they just did 45, a 45 minute version of you really got me, um, (laughs) in protest at, uh, at the conditions and not being paid in time and so on. Um, so the theory is that this concert promoter, um, worked uh you know sort of went to the federation of musicians and got them banned um but then also there were some forms that weren't signed and and so on so nobody knows exactly but the upshot is that for four years they can't tour the united states and you know the sort of standard line uh in histories of the kings is that because they couldn't tour the united states they uh raised the principal songwriter felt sort of free to um not right for an American market. He didn't feel like he had to write American style rock music. Um, he could go English. He could sort of delve into his own past and his family's past on albums like um, uh, Village Green Preservation Society and Arthur um, and Mozart Billies, which is sort of riddled with um, references to his own family and his own. Well, of course, and, and and you talk about the the concentric circles of of, of the, the the geographic circles of the Kinks uh, mm-hmm. career and, and life, and and that one it, it goes through Muswell and these pubs, and mm-hmm. and then even when I think about uh, Come Dancing, which mm-hmm. is so much later, right? It's the, yeah, it's one like of the last three eighty four, I believe. Yeah. It's it's the end, kind of really the end of their career almost um, yeah. uh, in in a certain phase of it. But but you talk about the their sister Peggy in the dance halls and and they never go far, right? They never leave um, psychologically, uh, thematically from where they grew up. Yeah, yeah, and I mean literally, like again, this is where this sort of um, uh, the the research that I did, which was basically just walking around London. Um, came in handy was in 1965. The other thing that happens is that Ray, um, having hit you know rock star uh, kind of uh, uh, fame and wealth, decides to go out and buy a, a big fancy home. And the big fancy home he buys 
is literally a two minute walk from the house he grew up in. Um, something that he walked by, you know, all the time as a child, a <laughs> semi-detached house, um, quite large, quite, you know, fairly expensive, but, um, you know, by rock star standards, very, very modest. Um, so he's literally living, you know, just still within almost shouting distance of his, of his uh, parents um, and, and various siblings who, who pop by the parents' house all the time. Um, and so his songwriting is, he, he sort of, he just, he drills down into that world. Um, I think especially of like Autumn Almanac, um, 1967, the, you know, repeating line, this is my street and I'm never going to leave it. Um, it, it, that came out, I think within just a couple of weeks of the Rolling Stones, 2000 light years from home. Um, oh and man, I think yes. Those two as being like, you know. <laughs> Yeah. kind of polar opposites like here i am i am literally a two-minute walk from my house uh, or from the place i grew up in i'm never gonna leave um and then you know the stones are sort of on this this weird uh, intergalactic fantasia uh he does eventually leave i have a couple of chapters about this he you know decides that he's gonna actually buy a rock star house in the suburbs north london he hates it he finds it too boring too stockbrokerish too um too distant from people um, you know, he's surrounded by all these sort of commuters and, and men in gray flannel suits and he doesn't like it. So he moves back to the same house. Um, and he stays there same until house. 1973. Um, and eventually he goes away. And, but even today, you know, he lives not super far from, he lives in, um, oh, Highgate, I believe. Anyway, not super far from where he grew up. So did, did you interview him for the book? I did not. Um, I did reach did out to both Ray and Dave's people. Um, but I was unable to, um, to arrange an interview, which is actually, you know, I, I've, I've thought about it and while it would be cool personally to be able to, to speak to them, um, I think it's probably better for the book. Like as a historian who works mostly on the 19th century, I'm accustomed to writing about people who can't talk back to me, right. um, and tell me that what I'm saying is wrong, but also, <laughs> um, I find, you know, they've given a million interviews and, uh, they're sort of they have this story that they tell now about this time and it's sort of been uh kind of uh cemented into this more or less rote kind of story that they tell to every interview and they have a sort of version that they want to get across um about what they were thinking and why they were doing the things they were doing in the 60s and i feel like um talking to them i wouldn't necessarily learn anything new and it might actually um shut down my own critical faculties, if you know what I mean. So l let me ask you this. Um, uh, a big question the Aver brothers have gotten since the beginning was, well, do you guys get along as well? Like, you know, like Ray and Dave didn't mm. get along very well, you know? <laughs> right. um, uh, what is the state of their relationship as best you can say today? As near as I can tell. So for years, there've been rumors of a, um, of a re reunion. Um, in addition to Ray and Dave, uh, Mick, the original drummer is still, is still living. Uh, Pete, the bassist, uh, died some years ago, but, uh, three of the four original ones are still around. And then there's a number of other people who were kind of in and out of the band over the years. Um, they, uh, have given interviews in the last year, uh, sort of hinting that there might be a reunion and shutting down those rumors that there might be a reunion. It seems like they have gotten together and maybe recorded some new songs over the last year. Wow. Um, they, uh, it's very unlikely that we'll see anything along the lines of a tour or anything like that. 
but I think we could probably expect at least some sort of new music. You know, Ray, like he's written, you know, dozens, hundreds perhaps of unreleased songs and um, is always reworking his old songs. And I'm sure there are ways that he and Dave are kind of going over um, the things that he has written over the years and uh, trying to find ways to record them. So um, as near as I can tell, they're getting along okay. Um, but there's always going to be that kind of tension. Yeah. Bob, I will say that like when you, uh, when you brought that, you said people have been asked, have asked you about the Davies brothers in relationship to oh, yeah, the always. Brothers. Yeah. It, it's, it's always, the, it, it's always the Davies brothers and Oasis. Right. Oh, and, oh, and, and the, and the Robinson brothers from Black Rose. That, that's terrible. <laughs> They're like, Hey, are you guys awful? Like, are you guys the worst here? The, yeah. But the Davies brothers, I will tell you when I was reading this, the, like the tension that, that Ray feels, like the, the connection to his neighborhood, the connection to home, the, the imagination of other places being pulled by that, and then still going back home. It did make me think about Scott a lot. Yeah, Scott doesn't want to leave home. And so, and I did think, I did think about that, like reading the introduction to this book. I was like, yeah. I've been joking that, yeah, but Ray Davies basically invented social distancing. So I think he's probably, <laughs> probably okay. I expect, you know, David. and I think that goes with the writing thing, you know, right. it's, you, you write at home. Like, I mean, that's where you don't mm-hmm. always write at home, but, but I think there's a, a coziness to that. And, uh, um, maybe, uh, you can think, you can think better and straight. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I think that, you know, that again, that's part of the, uh, the tension, the, um, the not fitting in this that comes through in the, in their sixties songs, Dave, much more outgoing, much more social. If you read, I highly recommend reading, uh, Dave's autobiography, which is just called kink about his, uh, extremely adventurous sexual life and just the drugs and the, the parties and all the rest of it. Um, it's really entertaining, but it, it's so different from Ray, who he has two autobiographies, but the first one is uh, called X-Ray. And it's one in which he basically constructs this weird scenario where um, it's kind of this dystopian um, world and a, uh, a young reporter has been sent to uh, interview this aged old rock star who um, could be anybody. Is Probably Ray, but <laughs> but it's not exactly Ray. And, he uses his middle um, name as a last name. I love the cover. Right, right. He's yeah. Like, could be and he, you know, he wrote this book when he was like in his 50s. Like he wasn't an age rock star at that time. But anyway, it's all about the sort of um, plausible deniability, uh, creating this, this persona through which he can tell his life story um, while not putting all of this in his own words. And it's all very cagey and very reserved. And Dave is just like, you know, all out there. And and that comes from their sixties songs. You know, Dave was like, "Yes, it's swinging London. I am going to um, make the most of this. Nobody in my family's history has ever, you know, had this level of fame and wealth. And I'm just going to, you know, make the most of it, even if it kills me. And it almost did on a couple of occasions. Um, and Ray was very suspicious of the whole thing the whole time. You know, there were times when he would go out and party and and do the rest of it. But mostly, he was sitting in his home. Uh, two minute walk from the house he grew up in and um, writing songs about and slightly making fun of uh, the world that his brother and his other bandmates were uh, kind of indulging in. And and your pet theory is that he gave the lyrics to one of the songs to his brother to sing to make it more ironic. Yeah. yeah, It's slightly (laughs) a convoluted theory, but you know, Ray is tricky. So yeah, I'm not like everybody else Um, is this song that, you know, has become this kind of nonconformist anthem. And it's just, I'm not like everybody else. I don't want to live like everybody else. 
Um, and it gave, he wrote the song, Dave sings it, but yeah, I think to a certain extent, Ray, while Dave is singing it, is sitting back thinking, um, <laughs> uh, I don't know, just watching Dave, uh, almost parody himself, um, by insisting on his nonconformity while everybody else in the audience sings along. <laughs> so, so what, you know, and, and you see that in, in Muswell Hillbillies, you know, with the cute schizophrenia, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, 20th century, 20th century man, mm-hmm. um, it's it is this dealing with the the um just the times in which they lived but just the the anxiety of keeping up and the anxiety of 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 trying to you know have that job or or present yourself in the image uh that like for a rock star to be that rock star right mm-hmm. to to live out that that insanity that people perceive when I was, uh, you know, in my teenage years in high school and I was getting into classic rock, you, you're every week it's something new, right? There's mm-hmm. a new band. It's like the, the Who one week and it's Rolling Stones the next week and Pink Floyd the next week. When I got to the Kinks, uh, it, I tried to, pl- I was, I had struggled placing them in context of the mm-hmm. other bands of their era because there was, you talk about semi-detached. And you just described how Ray Davies, he's been very detached or, you know, from, from the, the, the life of Mick Jagger, right? These guys are not the same. Um, did the, did the kinks feel a pressure, um, to, to, or they like they were in competition with the stones or even the who, or did they just not care? (laughs) I think they cared. I think, um. Well, so Dave, you know, he hung out with like Brian Jones, the Stones, um, Eric Burden of the Animals. Um, he was pretty social with a lot of those guys. And I don't, I think Dave was just happy to be along for the ride and, 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 and join in part of the scene. Ray, I mean, it was the Beatles. The Beatles were his kind of benchmark. And there is a way of interpreting the Kinks career as kind of trying to catch up with the Beatles or outdo the Beatles. You know, the, the Kinks are the Village Green Preservation Society. You could read us an answer to the Beatles, you know, the Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band. Well, and all those bands had an answer to that, right? Didn't the Stones? Right. I mean, you talked about- Yes, for uh, Satanic yeah. Majesty's request. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, he was very competitive probably with everybody. He has this famous review, uh, Ray wrote a review, I forget which publication it was for, but one of the music magazines of Revolver, this 1966 Beatles masterpiece, in which he hates every song. He does not like any of the songs, um, <laughs> except uh, I'm Only Sleeping, which I think he can relate to because it's about being tired of the music business and uh, and just tired of the world and wanting to be left alone. Um, so uh, the Who, you know, I don't know I know Pete Townsend has said repeatedly how much he admires Ray's work um, and and was inspired by the Kinks at an early stage in the Who's formation. And they had the same producer, Shel Talmy. And so I think the Who certainly looked up to and were to a certain extent emulating the Kinks. I don't know how much the Kinks were sort of paying attention to the Who. But what happens is, of course, while um, the other part of the Kinks story in the late 60s is that while they are banned from touring the United States, um, they missed the chance to become mega tra- transatlantic uh, superstars, and the Who swoop in, and you know the Who produced Tommy, uh, 1969, oh. uh, reputedly the first rock opera. Although you can make the case for a couple of other earlier albums, but you know 
at the same time that the Kinks are releasing Arthur, which is also a rock opera, but um, does not have nearly the attention. Um, and it's part of this failed television program. So just it, it, it sort of falls flat. Um, so, and the Stones, I, I don't know. I, I, the Stones are kind of less in in the Kinks, apart from socially, are kind of less in the Kinks' wheelhouse. I think. Should, should we be um, more putting Ray Davies in the in the categorization with Pete Townsend? Mm-hmm. Like, are, are they are they more similar as far as uh, writers? Because the Kinks had several long form storytelling projects, or at least a few. I remember one Waterloo. Yeah, Return to Waterloo. Um, and and the, was was that not a long form uh, like a rock opera or a, a? Yeah, it was a kind of television movie uh, that I think rated as a solo project rather than as King's project. I, I would say, in terms of their ambitions, Townsend and and Ray would would be very similar. Um, you know, Ray, after those initial couple of years of fame, his ambition was always to create, uh, you know, a massive stage musical. Um, uh, and in the early seventies, they their live shows were essentially um, were musicals where sort of they had a sort of narrative. There were good guys and bad guys and um, characters and so on that they played in the the Preservation Act uh, one and two albums and Schoolboys in Disgrace. And I think the other members of the band sort of were humiliated and, and um, hated the whole thing and dressing up like school kids while they played and so on. But um, yeah, I think that those. Uh, you know, Townsend has also always wanted to do more than just write pop songs. It was about creating big artistic statements and, you know, smashing your guitar on stage was a big artistic statement. Um, and, uh, as, as were Tommy and the other things that he's worked on. So, yeah, I think there, there's a lot of kinship, uh, artistically between those two. Would it be fair to say that music for Ray Davies, it's like, it's his bane. Like, and I think, like, you go back, all right? So, so just let me pull these things together. Okay. He's, he's influenced by a musician who he sees on TV that recorded for this, for this Belgian picture and dies before it comes out. Right. He then has a sister, uh, Renee, who influences him musically, gives him his first guitar on his 13th birthday, and a couple of hours later goes and dies on a dance floor. He then, throughout his career, basically wants to be humped. He hates being photographed, but then he goes out. It's the music that he has to perform that gets him out of the house. And then as things go on, it's the music that leads him to leave his family and sure, to come back. It's the music that you point out, like in that period where they are banned from the United States, in many ways, it's, it allows him to stay true to that to those roots. It allows him to stay because America, you say, was always this imaginary for him. This thing that this thing that gripped him, that gave him fantasy, and you know they missed out on this this big boom. But in the end, you point out like once America opens back up, he kind of leaves behind the whole North London. I mean, that's the point where the book stops. Mm-hmm. And so. I don't know when I, he's an introvert who has to be extroverted. He's a guy who does not want to be photographed. Who's in a rock band. In so many ways, this guy has this thing inside of him that makes him do everything he doesn't want to do. And from the very beginning, it's almost like there's warnings. It's like, yeah. And then the guy who inspired me was dead by the time we saw his image. And then the sister who gave me the guitar died a couple hours later. And and then the rest of his life, it tears him. What, What do you think? Is this a... Is this minimalist, like what I'm doing here? Am I am I creating a conspiracy theory? What? No, I mean I think that 
makes sense. Um, I think for for Ray, uh, music is something that he has to do. Writing is something that he has to do. Um, you know, and it's not just the writing music. He, you know, he's written two autobiographies. He's done stage plays. He, um, in addition to the the things he did with the Kinks, he's uh, kind of been involved in recent years with various um, theater projects. Um, so yeah, I think he he sort of has this uh, kind of inner demon, um, slightly cliche, but I suppose it makes sense here, that drives him to create art. And, um, you know, and I think he it's the creating that matters to him. It's not the performing, it's not all the trappings that go with it. I think he, he actually, he quite appreciates the money that goes with it. Um, <laughs> he's famously kind of unwilling to part with any money if he can help it. Um, but apart from that, like the, the lifestyle he doesn't like, the, um, uh, the sort of social aspect of it, I don't think he cares a whole lot for. But it's it's the, uh, the drive to create that, um, that pushes him. And um, yeah, I think there's also this kind of morbid um, aspect as well. You know, we could add to if we're thinking about um, depressing things that that inspired his art. Uh, the probably his most loved song today, at least in the UK, is uh, Waterloo Sunset. Uh, he performed it at the Olympics closing ceremony in 2012, and it's kind of the the one that people go to um, when they're thinking about about his kind of genius as a songwriter. And that was written inspired by a, uh, a hospital stay when he was a teenager, when he had an emergency tracheotomy and almost died and was kind of on, at this hospital looking over the Thames. And um, and he kind of goes back to that moment uh, in 1967 when he's writing the song. So this kind of close association between art and death, I think, I think there's something to that. But also, the, it, I think it captures a lot of what you say about him because he always, he never thinks about himself as being like he's never secure. He doesn't suffer from the overconfidence that a lot of people suffer from. No. And you even point out, I love this in that, in that, in this beautiful, what people consider to be like this, you know, today, this song that represents his genius and, and the music of the band, he just describes the sunset as fine. Like <laughs> right. he's too, he's afraid to say it's amazing. And you say, it's like, well, if you say it's amazing, somebody could be like, no, it's not. And if you say it's fine, you could be like, it's not that good, but you're like, dude, I just said it was fine. Right. Never said it, it was really amazing. captures that. Waterloo sunset is fine. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I talk about this in the book. He uh, has characterized that song as, you know, one of his most confessional. He was embarrassed to bring it to the band because it was so, you know, raw. And 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 if you listen to the song, it, there's actually, it's not all that, you know, it's not hard on the sleeves. Um, you know, Julian Baker kind of emotion, right? It's, it's, it's very, um, it's still pictorial. It's, there's something impressionistic about the song. It, it, there's still a lot of detachment going on, even in the song that he feels is, is bearing his soul. And in connection with that rock opera, you, you say early in the book, you talk about how, how, um, the kinks were connected to their neighborhood and, and, uh, post-war Britain, but also to the generation before that in the 1930s in vaudeville. And so I'm just wondering uh, to kind of tie that that rock opera um, thought up in up in a bow, and and um, you got Pete Townsend and you got Ray Davies who are driven to create these stage productions or yeah. these long form uh, thematic uh, uh, rock works. Um, do you think it's it is a part of like like British history, the British theatrical history? You think they're tapping into that? Yes, I think in the case of Ray, uh, definitely in the the stage shows and this 
like 73, 74, 75, um, it was a deliberate attempt to kind of basically revive the music hall, um, the Victorian era, um, what in the U.S. is called vaudeville, um, what in the in Britain is called music hall or variety. Um, you know, they would decorate the lobby with uh, when they would perform. If if, um, if there was a lobby, they would decorate it with images of uh, music hall. Uh, stars from yesteryear the 1930s and 40s ray dressed up like um one of his musical heroes for for some of those productions so yes and and you know you can hear it in songs as early as as 1965 the influence of people like george formby and others um who are you know who who became famous among and very very popular among the british working classes uh for singing these kind of funny novelty songs about working class life self-deprecating um and uh but also kind of uh anti-establishment stick it to the man type uh type songs as well um yeah i think that's that's definitely the case it's weird how you have you really got me and yeah. then in the 80s you have paranoia <laughs> but you, and they're so similar yeah, and even it. like even low budget and 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 um that or do it again and <laughs> you know that that um that uh, I'd say the MTV era kinks. Yeah, and you know this is a period that I don't write about in the book, but um, they pe- people who are big fans of the Kinks will often say that you know being a fan of the Kinks is like being a fan of like five different bands, um, and uh, in the late seventies, after a period of kind of commercial. Uh, well, just not being very popular in the UK <laughs> or the US, they become um, this huge arena rock band, uh, mostly in the US. Like they don't really have much of a following in the UK in That's the crazy. 70s and 80s. Um, and I've talked to people, they played Nashville here uh, where I live. I played the municipal auditorium. And, you know, apparently basically it's kind of blew the windows out. They were so loud in like, you know, 1983 or so. Um, and that's, I think, you know, that to a certain extent, that's Dave reasserting himself. Um, Ray has this period where he's kind of driving the band and writing these lyrical um, opera, rock operas and pastoral songs and so on. And then in the late 70s, um, Ray is still writing the songs, most of them, although Dave is writing some as well. But, you know, that, that hard driving proto-punk uh, guitar sound comes back. And, um, and, and actually around that time, Dave is also putting out a series of... Uh, of solo albums that are also really kind of almost heavy metal. They're so uh, hard rocking. So yeah, I mean, they, um, they basically save their careers by reverting to the sound that, uh, that won them fame in the first place. It is amazing to see that, that, that transfer because, you know, I, as someone, again, as somebody who goes and listens to them, I actually was like, when I was reading the introduction to your book, I was, changing to listen to the songs you were talking about but you don't get into the 80s period so after that i was like how many hit songs do these guys have and i went and looked up the billboard chart and they've got so many of them across you know from the 60s to the 80s in the united states yeah and come dancing which is they're 20 years into their career and that like again it was another song i played and i was like i've heard this song i've definitely heard this song and the the song come dancing uh is so you you go there you're at the dance hall you can i mean and the way he talks about you know uh you know the, the uh, he talks about the, the location of the dance hall and it was this but before that it was this right. and then it was this mm-hmm. and then 
And then back then it was a dance hall. Like right. it just, it's just so visual and, um, but it's, it just flows and, uh, the orchestration's incredible. Um, it, you know, it really, uh, uh, blew my mind, uh, when I was, you know, 15 years old or whenever it came out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's another, let me add, that's another tragedy that I forgot to mention. The first place they ever went to see a live venue closed down the same year, the empire, the, uh, <laughs> right. that's nuts. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they do, um, I make a lot of this in the book that, you know, they, they sort of emerge into this working class world that is really, um, to say it's coming apart at the seams is a little dramatic, but it's really, it's utterly transforming from what it was before the war. Um, people are moving to the suburbs, the slums are being torn down, the Muswell Hillbillies is to a large extent and, uh, an album about slum clearance and, and rehousing of, of working class people in uh, in tower blocks. Um, wow! And, um, you know, you mean urban renewal as we yeah. call it here? <laughs> yes. Yeah. No. Exactly. Wow. The um, here come the people in gray is about a um, you know it's basically it's inspired by the Davies' grandmother who had lived in this nice old house um, in the East working class East London. Um, and then was, you know, one day the guy from the local council shows up with a compulsory purchase order and tells her she's going to have to move into a, a high rise apartment, um, you know, for her own good. And, um, and, and Ray is in this song and, and throughout the album kind of questioning, is this really for her own good to take her and, out of this? And is that, is that what the light, the labor party brought Britain? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, um, it, it's, it's, that's it's, why you got Margaret Thatcher. That's the, why you got Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> That I, I touch on that as well, actually. Yeah, um, I think the the roots of working class disaffection with welfare state uh, paternalism, you can definitely hear that coming through in uh, in in most of the Billies and other albums at that time, and then then that sort of feeds into Thatcherism. Uh, go on. I guess that all classes are now online at every university forever and ever. <laughs> uh, uh, we can all take your class now. <laughs> That's right. right. Sure. Why not? Um, <laughs> all I have to do is uh, actually create some better content than I've been able to prepare this, uh, this semester. That's uh, good. All well, I have to do is make the class. All right. So uh, I'll get on that. <laughs> sure. Also, Bob, we'll that's not true. We're not going online for any longer than we need to because learning takes place when people are talking to people. People teach people. Don't fall into it. You hear that? <laughs> hear that? It's true. Right. It's true, especially kids. I can. Um, I'm. A, I don't know if anyone's heard any screaming children back here, but yeah, it goes on every morning at my house because we're trying to homeschool, and by we, I mean my wife. And uh, it is tough sledding for sure. We love our teachers. We miss our teachers. We need our teachers. Yeah, I taught just just a shout out. I taught Solomon how to mow the grass. If you guys want to see that video, it's on my Twitter. Oh, I saw that. And can can he come to my house? <laughs> Yeah, actually, probably. Same. Wait. I'll give him fifteen bucks <laughs> and a Peppa Pig book. And, oh God, um, you can keep your fifteen dollars, then he'll be there. <laughs> um, but we go, Mark. Is there anything that that we haven't covered? Is there any takeaway you think people should uh, should, should get from this book? I just want to say it's fantastic, and you know, you know, like we, it's it's being a historian who also has a podcast. It's like things are coming out. You're always reading them. I sat down last night at like nine o'clock and I was like, okay, I've like kind of gutted the book a little bit. I'm like, I'm going to sit here and read it. And I read it till, I read it till like one thirty, and I didn't even notice the time. Wow. Well, thank you. Like, and I, and like, you know, it's usually you're like, all right, I'm going to get in this interview. I'm going to like know what's going on here. Right. We're going to queue up questions. And this is probably why I'm such a problem in this interview is because I just <laughs> read it. 
you know it just it was so good man thank you um yeah i guess you know we've covered most most of the main uh ideas in the book i would say you know the feedback that i've got from people who who like it not everybody does but the feedback i've gotten from people who like it is um the most rewarding has been um people who say i've listened to the kinks my entire life and um and and this book kind of made me appreciate the music in a different way and that's kind of what i was going for um you know it's not a biography of the band it's not going to reveal any real juicy secrets or anything like that but um my theory is that as a historian um adding some social context and explaining, well, this is what's going on at the time. This is why they're singing and writing about things that they're singing and writing about, um, that that will sort of deepen the listening experience. Um, and so, you know, if it, if it sends people back to those old albums, um, or even to the new stuff, you know, Ray and Dave continue to put out new stuff, um, then, then I will be, I will be quite happy. Mark, I will add on to that. If it sends people to want to learn more about 20th century Great Britain, I'll also say, but it doesn't, it's not just the songs. Like you made me think about Dickens in a different way. Because you classify that period between mid 65 and mid 67 as his Dickens period. And I'm like, well, why? And then you're like, well, Dickens used to just walk around and observe people and he would write songs. And when you say that, you know, there's that turning point with the song, what's the one that's that's the first one where they have the the mellow chords, uh, something man, the- uh, uh, Well-respected man. A well-respected man. Yeah. Where you're like, that's the turning point. That song is, it really represents this. And you're like, well, here's how he wrote it. It's like Dickens. That it's the the best books trick you into learning things, you know? And that's the way I'm like, I'm like reading about the Kinks. And then you're like, here's something about Dickens. And I'm like, oh, cool. It's it's throughout the book. Well, good. Well, thanks. Yeah, that's, you can say that about teaching as well, right? You know, sort of uh, uh, sucker uh, students into thinking they're they're going to learn about this one thing, and then they accidentally learn about something they didn't think they were all that interested in along the way. Sometimes it works out that way. Sometimes yeah. they just get bored. No, and I, I can I have a personal experience with that. Yeah. yeah, it's the best best about learning. Yeah, Doctor Mark Doyle, thank you so much for joining us on the road to now, man. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to The Road to Now. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell the world by giving us five stars and a review on Apple Podcasts or five stars on Spotify. Or maybe just tell a friend. Share a link on social media or text a friend. And if you know somebody who hasn't gotten into podcasts yet, well, let them know they can hear us every weekend on SiriusXM's POTUS Channel 124. If you enjoy The Road to Now, please join me in thanking the patrons who make this happen with a special shout out to our Washingtonians, Tanya Marsh, Mary Hawking, Tim and Caitlin Wells, Fig White, Matt Williams, Team Martin, Ann Williams and Frank Edwards, Nate Farrer, Jennifer M. Magnolia, Regina Devine, Chris and Teresa Adams, and Joy Avery. We are grateful to all of you. If you'd like to join that list or just support our work at any level, you can join us at patreon.com slash the road to now. We've got extended versions of select conversations, extra episodes, bonus material, and more. That's all available at patreon.com slash the road to now. Our patrons make the show possible. Thank you. For more on The Road to Now, visit our website, theroadtonow.com, where you can easily search our back catalog and quickly find links to content. Why is it so good? Because it was designed by Seven Ages Design. If you need a website, go check them out. The Road to Now was hosted and produced by Bob Crawford and Ben Sawyer. 
Our associate producer is Gary Fletcher. This episode was edited by Ben Sawyer. Our theme music is by Paul DeFiglia, and that's about it. For Bob Crawford, this is Ben Sawyer. Thank you for listening, and take care.